This is Messy Can't Stop Her, and I am your host, Judith Cambia Obatissa, J.K.O. Welcome to this episode of Messy Can't Stop Her, the podcast where we share the stories of women's resilience through chaos, crisis, and the challenges of life. As part of our conversations, from time to time, we'll be bringing experts to share perspectives and deeper insights on some of the issues raised by our guests. In the last episode of Messy Can't Stop Her, we had Jessica Fort, who was abducted as a teenager from Canada to the United States and held in domestic violence captivity for 15 years until she was able to escape back to Canada. She talked about the mental, psychological, and emotional impact of her experience on herself and on her children. One of the things she highlighted was something called attachment disorders. The description that she gave us of how it presents in the parent-child relationship and even in the child's life was so terrifying to me. And I realized that so many people are having those challenges, some challenges with with the children because of them having been in the domestic violence relationship that their parents or their caregivers were in. And I felt that we should bring someone who could give us deeper insight about this issue. On today's episode of Mexican Stopper, we have Osa Samuel Olagunju, a licensed professional counselor and psychotherapist of many years. She has given us a lot of information, so much that we're going to be hearing from her over a number of episodes. On today's episode, she'll be dissecting the issue of attachment disorder so that we can understand how it presents and what we can do as parents or people who know people in these situations. In the show notes, I'm going to have a link to Jessica's episode of Mexican Stopper, and you can go and check it out so that you can hear her story yourself and her description of what she eventually had to do, the painful sacrifice she had to make for her child to have a better life due to the impact of domestic violence on that child's life, which had led to attachment disorder. So let's get into the conversation with Osa Samuel Olagunju. Thank you, Osa, for graciously giving us your time and your presence to educate us and empower us to stand against the pandemic that's domestic violence. Judith, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. Thank you for having me. Um, This is one of the um, things I see in my practice. 
and not just in my practice in life, right? Because we know that research, which is conservative, tells us that one out of every four women has experienced abuse, right? Trauma in their relationships. And we know that most people are abused by someone they knew, so which is intimate partner violence. So when I enter into a room, I'm doing some work in that room. I'm very conscious that if there are eight people in that room, half of them have experienced this kind of trauma in their life. So this is not just something that is happening somewhere. This is a big endemic problem, right, all over the world. And I call it an insidious. I think other people have used that term, but I really buy into that term that it's an insidious problem because it lurks under the fabric of most of what we're doing, right? So we see people getting into um, problems in public, right? And oftentimes, if they say hurt people, hurt people, if you dig a little bit, right, there is an association with some form of trauma. And oftentimes that trauma is associated with domestic violence. I recently read something about child abuse. And it says that studies have shown that a child witnessing an abusive situation like domestic violence is impacted as if they were being abused, which is which is why the child welfare system, when they come into a home for whatever reason, and they discover that there is an abusive relationship between mom and dad, between their parents, between the adults, they stay until that relationship either ends or the situation changes or they take the child away Mm. because it's, equated as abusing the child. However, we're talking about the issue of attachment disorder, which can lead to behavioral challenges, other mental health challenges on the children, and then long-term impact. So, um, Osa, can you tell us about it? Give us more insight on that. So it's a complex issue. Right. You know, before when we're talking about, you know, friends that, you know, have a hard time supporting, I was struggling to come up with vicarious trauma. Right. Because just from the inside looking in, you can experience that. But a child within the home is actually being abused. Right. There's no indirect impact. When a child is in the presence of an abusive situation, the child is being abused. Right. So, for example, um, okay, so this has nothing to do with domestic violence. It has something to do with sexual violence, uh, sexual abuse. So if um, a, a parents are running around the house naked, right, that can be sexual abuse. You're not intentionally abusing the child, but it is. But it's more so when maybe one spouse is not the biological parent, right? That is sexual abuse right? They're not doing it to hurt the child, right? They think they're having fun, but that is sexual abuse. Just the proximity to what's going on is abusive. So no matter how, which way we stretch it, being a child, being in the home where abuse, whatever the type, 
spiritual, mental, physical, whatever wow. is being abused. The, there's impact on the child. There are studies that tell us that children that I know in homes where abuse is present are likely to repeat their behavior. Their, that, those behaviors, they're more likely to um, use substances to cope with their issues. Just um, they're more likely to have uh, what people call behavioral problems. And some people have associated this with the attachment theory. So attachment theory is basically talking about when a, um, your caregiver, your caregiver, right? When a child a child's proximity to their caregiver. When a child is raised, their closest caregiver, oftentimes is the parents or not. Whoever is their assigned caregiver, the, the attachment the children develop with that person, right, determines what kind of attachment they have, right? What kind of attachment presentation they have. So if you have parents that are caring, they show um, appropriate affect, they're loving, they're present, they're nurturing. The child is likely to develop a secure attachment, meaning when the child, you know, like you take them to their first day of school, right? Some children will cry. The child with secure attachment might cry, but they're easily soothed and they go back because they're trusting that these parents will be there when they say they will be there, right? A child with a parent, who by reason of domestic violence is not being able to be present for them, right, can develop an insecure, uh, different insecure um, attachment, whether it's avoidant, disorganized, resistant or ambivalent, right? These different disorders present themselves when there is an insecure attachment. By the time a child is six years old, um, the type of attachment they have is already set. Right. Wow. Um, yes. So, so, um, so the early years are really, really important in determining how secure or what kind of attachment a child is gonna have. Right. So, when a mother, for example, who is typically the primary caregiver of the child, is not able to be present, right, because they're somewhat depressed or just not being able, like, can you imagine someone has just been beaten, right? And how can you play with your child and be all, right? You do what you can to make sure the child is fed, clothed. It's just hard for the, and many mothers do it, right? Mothers are so resilient. They still dig deep and find ways to um to support their child but often an abuser will see that the mother and the child relationship is beneficial and take it away right Mm -hmm. separate the child and so that process also causes insecure attachments in children so such a child you bring them to that first day of school some children, because they don't know if the parents are here or there, will be dismissive of the parent, go off, not be able to form any attachment, even the kind of attachment needed to be formed with their teacher so they can do well in school, cannot make friends at school, right? Because they have that insecure attachment from home. 
Some have disorganized, right? They're not, it's neither here nor there. Disorganized because they don't know when their parent is going to be loving or not loving. They don't know when they're going to be hit or not hit. And so they enter into the world with that kind of disorganized presentations. They have problems with emotion regulation. So they're completely dysregulated emotionally, right? They're here, they're there. Nobody knows what's going on. You know, the class is going on. Miss, uh, Miss, Miss, Amy is crying. Why is Amy crying? Nobody knows why she's crying. In the middle of a serious conversation, Amy is laughing. Nobody knows why she's laughing. Emotions are completely dysregulated because of that insecure, disorganized attachment that they have with the parents. And so this speaks to how it will keep going on in all relationships that they um, get after that. It goes without saying that there will be behavioral problems in school, difficulty, you know, coping with classwork, social issues, all these kinds of things can happen following attachment issues that can be triggered by domestic violence situations. So again, instead of making this about blaming the mother, let us use this like a, another level of evidence, right? To speak to mothers about how harmful, or parents about how harmful the domestic violence environment can be. Oftentimes, if you can convince a mother that something is unsafe for her child, she will do what she needs to do to remove the child from that situation. I need to put in a caveat here that one of the most dangerous places for a woman or man in a domestic violence situation to be is the place where they are leaving the relationship. So that place, that process must be taken very seriously, very thoughtfully, and the steps taken must be very, very intentional in keeping everybody safe. My heart just breaks for the many lives that are struggling now because of this. And one thing that the lady who mentioned attachment disorder told me is because of the complexity of it, many times it goes undiagnosed. So the kids are diagnosed for every other thing, but the real thing. And, and people don't know what to do. They don't know how to, how to take care of it. It's not necessarily a diagnosis. Okay. Right. So you won't find attachment, um, disorder something we we diagnose in treatment but it's a presentation um, that can result in behavioral problems so we see some children with behavioral problems we know or we can deduce by the evidence that they're giving us that is due to attachment disorder um, disorder issues i guess that's why People don't go around saying I have an attachment disorder diagnosis, right? And it's and it's a manageable situation, right? Manageable situation. Can you just tell us about the you mentioned them and you described two the types of attachment disorder? So there's four. Yeah. Secure one, and there are three insecure types. Yeah. So the avoidant one, you know, does not seek the mother when she returns. So if the mother goes away, like I was talking about school or the parents go away, they don't seek the parent when they return. They just focus on their environment because they've learned not to trust. 
that the parent will be there. And so this presents in, uh, they tend to cut themselves off emotionally. So I was saying in school that they don't really develop uh, the sort of attachments necessary to foster healthy relationships and foster a healthy learning environment for themselves. They're, you know, they're not trusting of people of relationships because obviously the one that, the primary care was not a trusting um, relationship, right? The ambivalent or resistance one is the child can be very, very upset when the parents leave and they are very inconsolable. And so that's how it presents in children. They are preoccupied with fear. You know, they want to, they can be very clingy. And so, as you know, you know, it presents problems when they want to develop their own, own relationships. People are very wary of and people that they feel, feel will be clingy. You know, they don't want to be burned out by relationships and things like that. You know, all of us have our own sort of tendencies where attachment is concerned. Mm-hmm. And so when you match two friends that have like avoidant um, ah. <laughs> You know, so you know how that relationship is going to be. And just, you know, little kids in the in the playground, right? So we need a lot of secure people. But the good news is about this, it's not like it's a death sentence. It's yeah. like, and it's, again, it's not your fault. You are too young to figure out what kind of attachment you are going to present as. It's things that it's just really to be aware of the, the way you present in relationships and manage it. So if I find myself being very clingy all the time, I realize it's probably due to an attachment type that I have. I become more aware of it, mitigate against it. Remind myself that, you know, not everybody's going to leave me. I don't have to cling to everybody. Build on the evidence that the people I care about and I want to stay in my life stay. And even when they stay, it doesn't have anything to do with me, right? So those kinds of things. I say this to say, I don't want anybody to be stuck on the kind of attachment type that they are, right? Just be aware of what your tendencies are and sort of manage them. Be aware of how your children are presenting. the different ways, the different behavioral cues, and like cognitive behavior therapy that that are being utilized to help children manage better their attachment type presentations, even in relationships today. Okay, so just as as we end this conversation, as we end the conversation, can you just give us your last thoughts? Okay, my. I want everybody to know out there that domestic violence and intimate partner violence is everybody's problem. Everybody has to have their hands on deck. How are you raising your sons? How are you raising your daughters? How are you looking out for your neighbor? How are you in your relationship that everybody seems healthy? Are there things, little things that you do that you could address to make sure that your children and those that look up to you are not getting the cues that it's, it's okay to be mildly abusive because some people can take it further than you're taking it. Look inward first, and then let's look outward. Let's be our brother's keeper. In our case, our sister's keeper. This is everyone's business. We all need to get all hands on deck to ensure 
that we keep each other safe because whether you like it or not, right? If your neighbor is suffering domestic violence and you have children in the community, it's affecting your children. Your children come home and they're affected by that. And so that's just one small way. I know going to the grocery store and not seeing that lady that smiles at me, you know, I don't know her name, but the lady that always smiles at me at the till and finding out that she's a victim of domestic violence. That impacts me and impacts the entire environment. And so let all of us like think deeply. Let's look inward and see what we can do and um, how we can address it. We talked earlier on about how friends and family can be supportive, right? And how they can become overwhelmed because this is very, very, uh, it's a very, very difficult situation. And so it's important to access resources like therapy, a lot of community mental health places will find ways of providing this service for free. There's actually a lot of services. Even if you go to your local police station, often they can give you resources that the person being abused can utilize and get some kind of therapy. There's even things like people being financially abused. There's resources to help them figure that out. So there's a lot of resources out there. Please, please connect to those resources. Therapists are trained to support people in these situations so that, you know, your friends are not overwhelmed, right? They're not burned out because it's very hard to want to support someone and you don't know how. So sometimes people pull back because they don't know how. They don't want to make things worse. So let's go to people who know how and who can help us help our friends, help us help our friends. So I know I know. often when I'm doing grief therapy, I often tell people, you know, these are the list of things or these are some of the things you can tell your friends that they can do to support you. Because often people don't go to their bereaved friends because what am I going to say when I get there? And so they pull away. So if you can have cues and tips to give those people that want to support you on how best to support you, that will be helpful in building your own community to help you get through this situation. And the way to start that oftentimes is to access mental health services so that they can provide you the resources, the tools, the psychoeducation that can be helpful to yourself and those around you. So I know I often ask if you want somebody who is supportive to come into therapy with you, I will often do a supportive to help the people around them, their friend who wants to be helpful but doesn't know how, just to talk them through that process, right? So that as a community, we're helping each other to help one another, right? We don't know how. We were not raised. Your mother didn't raise you. My mother, my parents didn't raise me to say, oh, when that person is abused, is being abused, this is how you know and this is what you do, right? So let us not guilt each other, but let's teach each other. Let's be proactive and intentional in learning how to support each other and get there. Thank you so much, Osa. Thank you so much for your time to hear. And um, in the show notes, I will put Osa's bio. I also put links to her, her services. If you're interested, you get in touch with her and she can support you if you're in that place where you can, where you will benefit either yourself as a mom or as a parent from her services. Thank you so much, Osa, for being with us today. We really, really appreciate the time you've given us and we're looking forward to seeing you again. Who knows when? 
Thank you for having me, Judith. I hope I've made some sense today. You know, I just, if, if you didn't get anything, just know that you're loved. It's not your fault. And there's a way forward. Thank you so much, Osa. Like Osa said, we all play a role in the matter of domestic violence. We all play a role in creating awareness about it and preventing it. We all play a role in protecting our children from the impacts of domestic violence. So I'd like to beg you, if you're listening to this episode, to please share it with as many people as you know. Because when I heard attachment disorder and Jessica Ford shared the impact in her life and the the very, very, very expensive sacrifice that she had to make so that her daughter could have a good life. I realized how much damage we do to these innocent babies that we are blessed with. And I want to beg everyone who is listening to this episode to please share it far and wide. Share it far and wide to anyone, whether you know that they are going through domestic violence or they are not, whether male, whether female, whether mothers, whether fathers, even uncles. Share it so that the more people know the impacts, the more we can all work together to put an end to it. And like I always say, when we do this, messy can't stop us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messy Can't Stop Her. See you next time.